You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. I was super excited today to introduce this guest. And I, and I don't know if Dr. Richard Dawkins really needs an introduction, uh, but Angie and I are are here today to, to speak with him and pick his mind. It, this is one of the world's leading, if not top, evolutionary biologists. Uh, just a quick bio in Dr. Dawkins. He was born in Kenya, and then he moved back to or moved to the UK when he was eight years old. Studied zoology at the University of Oxford, graduated with honors, then stays on to finish his doctorate. And I didn't know this, but Dr. Dawkins went off and was an assistant professor of zoology at UC Berkeley uh, in, in, in a very interesting time uh, in the late 1960s. And then he went on to go back to the University of Oxford as a, and he was on faculty there since 1970. In 1995, he was appointed the Simoni uh, Professor of Public Understanding of Science at Oxford, which he held until 2008. He's authored 17 books now, uh, you know, some that you might have read, The Selfish Gene, The God Delusion, The Greatest Show on Earth, The Evidence for Evolution. I'm trying to get my hands on that down here in New Zealand. And then we're, today we're going to talk about his latest book, Flights of Fancy, Define Gravity by Design and Evolution. Dr. Dawkins, first, welcome, but I just have to say this book blew me away. The artwork was jaw-dropping. This is, it, it was a real treat to read this, and I, I just want to say congratulations on your latest book, but wow, welcome, and uh, thank you for writing this book. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, Dr. Dawkins, this is a dream come true for me, uh, studying your work uh, years ago as an undergrad in uh, zoology. It's just, this is just a real treat for me. And as Chris mentioned, every night for the past couple of weeks, I've got to go to bed reading your book and holding it in my hands and being just moved uh, and uh, entertained. I, had, I giggled out loud and I learned a lot. Uh, I, I actually felt bad uh, pinning back some of the pages that were my favorite. So I just have a whole bunch of bookmarks in there to take more notes from. And not only the words on the page, which are incredible, all about birds and flying and inspiring science. It was just fantastic. But the artwork is incredible. Even touching the prints, they're slightly raised. Uh, your, your graphic illustrator uh, definitely needs a big shout out to Jana Linzova. Am I saying yes. that right? Mm -hmm. yes. So I can't wait to get, uh, to get talking more about this book in detail. I promise to our listeners we will get there. But our first question for you is your curiosity and love for science in the natural world. When did that begin? And did you have that aha moment that pushed you forward in your sciences? Rather ashamed to admit it was rather late, actually. Uh, not, not until I got to Oxford did I get really um, enthusiastic about science. Um, I sort of rather wasted my school days. And then when I got to Oxford, the discipline of the Oxford tutorial where you have to write an essay every week and you have to go into the library 
Well, nowadays, you'd probably just go onto the internet. But when I was an undergrad, you went into the library. Me too. Yes. Okay. Uh, it was, I got lost there once and got sat down in the corner and uh, cried a little bit. But then I picked myself oh, no. back up. <laughs> but I, it was so confusing how to find the book that, that I was supposed to find. But then I got help from the librarian and I checked out the well, book. And, and what I, I liked about it was that it, we were not using textbooks. We were using the original research literature. Absolutely. So I would be given a, a list of papers to go and look look up in the original journals and then i had to write an essay synthesizing criticizing balancing arguments and because the topic was rather narrow it was possible to read all the the recent research literature on that topic and become as an undergraduate a well in in effect an expert on this very very narrow subject yeah. And that, um, uh, I think that fired me, I, that, that, that fired me up because um, I felt I was with the big boys and girls. I was, I was, um, you know. Contributing and. Uh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Well, I, one of the things that, that fascinates me is, you know, since we started doing this podcast and if I had to go back and redo my PhD, I think I would go into evolutionary biology. It, it is a field that just fascinates me. And every species we cover, when I do start studying their, their evolutionary history, and that, that, that goes back millions of years, if not tens of millions of years, it, it, it's a field that just is fantastic to study. So, so I'm a bit jealous that, that I went to animal physiology and, and, and you've been able to study this for so many years. What pushed you into evolution? What what was, you know, what pushed you to study it? And then how does it help us understand our natural world today? And then leading up to the book, Flights of Fancy, you know, the evolution of flight, but the bigger picture, you know, why is evolution so important to science? Yes. Well, uh, I mean, I think you said it when you said you, you regretted not doing it yourself. I mean, it is. Yeah. It's what makes sense of everything else. It always astonishes me the way uh, the evolution chapter is is usually last in the textbook instead of being first. How can you possibly study any aspect of biology without asking the question, what's it all for? What's it all about? Mm-hmm. Um, it seems I think it's astonishing that anybody can study biology with with without studying evolution. So. I'm not sure that question needs an answer. I mean, yeah. any, anybody who does biology can't help getting into it. I actually did my PhD in Oxford, we call it DPhil, in animal behavior. And um, I just retained an interest in evolution from my undergraduate days and then retu- returned to that mm-hmm. later. So I don't think I ever had an aha moment. I think I just... Um, well, the whole of the whole of biology forces you to have an aha moment about evolution, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Well, and for a lot of our listeners that might not be as familiar with some of the evolutionary processes or even some grand examples of evolution, would you mind sharing with our listeners some of your favorite or, or one of your favorite stories of evolution and how, like, I love, I love your analogy about the eye and how that evolved. Would you mind sharing that with us? Yes. Well, that was really in in answer to the 
common creationist question, what's the use of half an eye? Um, and so you can do that with quite a lot of things. Sure. That, taking an, taking an, an, an organ and of, of high complexity mm-hmm. and showing how it could evolve from something simple. So the, the eye is a very good example. Wings are another very good example. Uh, what's the use of half a wing? And they have a chapter on, on that in, mm-hmm. in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look at, um, and another way of looking at it is look at fossils and, and eyes on the whole don't fo- don't fossilize. Um, so um, there are certain groups of animals where there's a beautiful fossil history that you can follow. I mean, whales is a good example. Um, horses, another one. Elephants, another one. Um, in the case of whales, we know from molecular evidence that whales are related to hippopotamuses, oddly enough. It's rather, rather, it's a very strange finding. Nobody saw that coming. That, that was <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> right. um, but now, now we do have a fairly good fossil record of, of whales where you have an obviously land-dwelling animal with legs, and then you have an animal that spent part of its time in water also with legs and arms. And then gradually the arms and legs shrank until now with modern whales they are well the arms have become flippers and the legs have just disappeared altogether there's traces of the bones inside um so that's a very nice fossil history Mm -hmm. um the example of the eye that you mentioned well darwin himself did that darwin himself said the eye is a um is a big problem and then he solved the problem Creationists love to quote just the first part of the sentence, just just the way he says it's a big problem, and leave out the second part where he actually answers it. Um, so I've done that a number of times, but so have other people. I think the, the wing is a nice example because you know what what's the use of half a wing? Um, and we have a whole chapter on that in in Flights of Fancy, um, where the answer is that anything that increases the surface area of an animal uh, enables it to um, jump a little bit further. For example, if it's a squirrel up in the trees, um, it can, if it can jump a certain distance without a little flap of skin, it increases the surface area. It then can jump just a bit further if it has a flap of skin. And the bigger the flap of skin, the further it can jump. Until in the end, you get things like flying squirrels, which can glide hundreds of yards um, from from one tree to another, and and there's a gradual ramp of improvement, a gradual uh, step by step improvement, which is what you need. So that's and and you, it's easy to see how that could have culminated in, in true flight with something like. A bat already. If you watch things like flying squirrels and mm-hmm. um, the Australian flying phalanger, the, the marsupial equivalent, or the the flying lemur, which is not a lemur but but has a, a sort of flying sort of parachute, um, these are these are you can see them controlling their glide. They move the limbs, you know, in a way that steers them. Very easy to see how that could turn into true flapping flight. Well, absolutely. And from <laughs> flight and all the feathered flying dinosaurs that we have uh, currently out there, 
some of them have decided to not use their wings and their wings have shrunk down. Why do you think that is? Well, that's remarkable too. I mean, we have a chapter in the book on, on that very subject. If flying is so great, why do some animals uh, lose their power of flight, lose their wings? Um, I think it's something like 60 different group, different families of birds when they land on, when they arrive on islands, lose their wings or, or shrink their wings, probably because there are no predators on the islands. So they don't need the wings. And then you have to realize that biology is strongly economic subject. Wings are costly. Mm -hmm. um, they're costly to make, costly to use, and the muscles that you need to power them are also very costly and very energetically costly when you actually do use them. The extremely dramatic example of wings not being needed is when queen ants have had their mating flight and they, the only reason they have wings at all is that they fly and mate on the wing. Then they settle down on the ground and dig a hole and start a new nest. Before doing that, they actually bite their own wings off or tear them off. Well, that really is a dramatic demonstration of um, wings not being necess necessary. Now, I found that chapter fascinating because you 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 definitely jumped into a lot of a lot of birds down here in New Zealand. You know the mo the extinct moa, the kiwi. You know, we, we have the kakapo and even our bats, you know, tend to be ground dwelling a little bit. And that's right. That's exactly right. Um, have you read Douglas Adams's wonderful description of the, of the kakapo? Douglas Adams wrote, wrote in, you know, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy mm -hmm, Man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also wrote a book called Last Chance to See on animals that are in danger of going extinct. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to um, go around the world recording in his own inimitable style descriptions of these animals and the kakapo he said it has forgotten how to fly but it's forgotten that it's forgotten how to fly <laughs> and so it climbs up in a tree and launches off and then plummets to the ground <laughs> but it's very endearing his description of it yeah yes and i hope i hope to see one there, there there's talks of them finally reintroducing them on the main island again so you know what less than 200 left in the world and they're on one of the outlying islands aren't they yes yes down i think stewart island or down near stewart island yes. off the, the the south island yeah yeah yes. but they're doing well they're doing well on on the one island they have but you know again that's why new zealand we're, we're in such dire crisis sometimes because all these ground dwelling birds getting picked off by all the uh, introduced mammals so so getting this uh, getting this dr Hawkins. What inspired you to write Flights of Fancy? Because it, it is such a fascinating, all these different aspects of evolution, like we even talked about whales and hippos and how that whole process happened uh, through the evolutionary history. But what made you decide, you know what, I really want to talk about flight? Well, I mean, it, I could have written about swimming or, or digging. I mean, there are I hope you do. That was one of yeah, my follow-up yeah, questions. It, 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 I, was, I would like one on each big topic. Yes. yes. There are all these are fascinating subjects. I mean, do you think about animals that live underground and burrow through the ground, or um, the deep diving mammals? Deep diving. I mean, that's right. I mean, that uh, th maybe that will be the next one. Um, but so, but but flying does have a sort of fascination. I think for all of us, 
uh, we met, many of us dream of flying. Yes, I, I'm very lucky that um, I had a handful of them. Yes, and um, people who make computer games, you know, let 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 you fly with your avatar, mm-hmm. um, and and that's great fun too. Uh, throughout history, people have dreamed of flying. If, I mean, Leonardo da Vinci, for example, we have discussed him a bit and his his inventions of of flying. I think we feel kind of trapped on the ground. And when you watch a bird so free up there, able to travel through the third dimension, it's a great um, longing that people have, I think. But um, as, as I said before, uh, I, maybe the next one will be about, about swimming. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. That would be amazing. And Dr. Dawkins, while you're researching and preparing the book, did you learn anything new or did anything surprise you when you were writing the book? Oh, I think so. Yes. I, I probably can't think of any specific examples just off the cuff, but, but yes, um, I, 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 I learned a lot. I mean, I, I read a lot for it and. Um, yeah. The, the aerial plankton really struck me. I, I really yes, enjoyed that yes, chapter. Yes, right. I never thought of it like that. No, quite. Um, I mean, the, 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 the principle that animals need to spread their offspring far and wide, mm-hmm. um, even though they may be living in a very good place, mm-hmm. uh, it's because it's not going to be good forever. Animals, if, if animals look back at their ancestry, they're going to see um, their ancestors probably came from a different place. And and for good for good reason, and they survived too, right? Yeah, they had to survive, yeah. <laughs> and then go to a different place. It's incredible. Yeah, the, the aerial plankton is, is full of creatures doing that and spreading their pollen or spreading their um, seeds, their spores, their young um, little spiders, little insects spreading around the world. So yes, I I I was I learned a lot about that. I wanted to jump in that uh, one of my favorite quotes in the book, and I wrote this down and, and I'm going to carry this one uh, for quite a while. And, and I definitely, again, for our listeners, this book is wow. It, it jaw dropping. Wow. You're interested in science. Read this book. It, it, it is amazing. And there was one uh, sentence in there. It said individuals die, but genes live on as copies. And I just, that, that just so perfectly captures what evolution is and, when you were talking about, you know, spreading genetics and breeding, I, I would, if you could go back in time and and watch this process unfold, what evolutionary pressures were you think, do you, do you think pushed animals to start to fly? And I think we started with insects, right? And then we went to pterodactyls and then to birds. Yeah, insects were way ahead of the vertebrate. Yes. But, um, Insects and then I, I suppose pterosaurs after after that, and then birds and bats. Um, I think in a way that the wonder is they didn't fly sooner. I mean, given that insects sh- sh- could 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 do it, um, and um, yes, it's it's quite surprising that it that it waited as long as it did to the birds and bats waited as long as they did and t- and pterosaurs. I mean, because if you think about what what flight is good for, there's another. We have a chapter on that as well. It's good for so many things. It's good. I mean, it's fast travel. 
escaping from predators, um, spotting food, uh, migrating, all these things flight is good for. And um, so it's sort of surprising it didn't evolve sooner. And do you think that some of these gliding species or flying snakes that you mentioned in the book that I'm like, okay, Chris, we have to cover that one on the podcast, uh, that they don't technically fly, but they glide in the lizards as well. Mm. Do you think that over time they may develop wings and fly or do you have any, is there any, is there any examples of evolution? One reason why they might not is that birds and bats are already there. And so, um, the niches are already filled by birds and bats. Um, and so the perhaps um, if, 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 if by some, if a, a plague of a, a virus wiped out all the birds, then I could imagine perhaps, and bats, and I can imagine that perhaps flying squirrels or flying phalangers might stay up in the air instead of just gliding for a hundred yards. Um, gliding for a hundred yards is a pretty spectacular thing to do. Yes, definitely. Or jumping through the water, like the sail, the, uh, the flying fish. Flying fish, yes. Mm-hmm. Just incredible. And flying squid as well, doing the same thing, but backwards. Right. Yeah, they <laughs> use the jet propulsion backwards. I, I That I have to see. I don't know if there's a video of that on YouTube or somewhere, but I, yeah. I need to, I need to see is. that. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Oh, so great. And now switching gears a little bit, uh, because Chris and I are big, big fan of educating not only our listeners to the podcast, but also uh, the youth. Uh, we, we do have some younger listeners that are very passionate about animals and both science. And so I'm wondering if you have any advice on how to help instill passion and curiosity for science, nature, and the scientific method in kids. Oh, I, I, I always hate that question. Um, <laughs> I think, um, oh, well, uh, I, I personally am not, a, I don't subscribe to the view that um, the way to make it interesting is to make it hands-on. Okay. If that's, I mean, that on the face of it, that would seem to be an obvious thing to do. Um, and, and it is a good thing to do, but I think, an equally good, if not better, thing to do is to inspire them with the poetry of science. Um, the Carl Sagan approach, um, which you can do with biology as well. The, I mean, in his case, looking at the immensity of the universe, um, the romance of the stars and galaxies, um, you can inspire people with that. Uh, and, and that can be sort of hands-on as well. I mean, there's a there's a lovely demonstration, forget who thought it up, of, of the sheer size of the universe, where you, you take the children out onto a playing field and you deposit a soccer ball on the ground to represent the sun. And then you to scale, you 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 then want to represent Earth. And so you walk, I forget what it is, maybe 20 yards. And then you put down a peppercorn. I may have got right. that wrong, but yeah. it's, it's like something. Mm-hmm. I think it's more actually would be more like more like a more like a pinhead. Um, and then you walk maybe a hundred yards. I can't remember to to put down Jupiter. And and you say so you've got the the solar system, which you can just about fit onto a large playing field. 
And then what about the nearest star, Proxima Centauri? Pick up another soccer ball and walk 2,000 miles. And that's the nearest star. That's crazy. What a great visual. Yes. So that, that, that's, that's a way of inspiring them. And, and they love that. I've actually done that with children. Mm -hmm. um, they love it. And um, it really does turn them on, that, that kind of thing. That, that is sort of hands-on. Mm -hmm. But the kind of hands-on, which is, um, I don't know, the, the science of cookery, or, or I, 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 that, I, I, I wouldn't do that. I mean, trying to bring it down to us, trying to, trying to bring it down to the familiar, the mundane. Mm -hmm. It's not mundane. It's, it's exciting. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Be beautiful, that, poetic, definitely. Yeah, that's why yeah. we we studied for so long in college uh, to get there. It, so, doctors, where do you see flight going? If you could speed up time and and the species that we have today, do you see anything like fantastical in the future for flight? You know, different animals either uh, evolving, sure. de-evolving. I sort of feel if it was going to happen, it would already have done. Um, I mean, if, if for example, w we note in the book that um, b ballooning is a perfectly good way of getting lift. Mm -hmm. No animal's done it. Um, and and it, I sort of feel it, it probably won't happen since it hap hasn't happened already. Um, but that, that would be one example of, a, of an, an innovation which hasn't been tried yet. Mm -hmm. um, using something like hydrogen. Animals can make gases that are lighter than air. They can make methane, they can make hydrogen. Um, so, and they can make silk. And so to, to, to make a balloon would not be, you might think would not be beyond them. I mean, the, the, the components, the individual components are there. Um, jet propulsion, well, that happens in water. I, I can't imagine quite how that would evolve in mm -hmm. air. Um, space travel is pr probably not a, a possibility. <laughs> yeah, some species, yeah. What, you, what do you have in mind? Um, we've already talked about whether things like flying squirrels might turn into truly flying animals. Also. Um, uh, Angie, you mentioned flying snakes and flying frogs. I mean, they're they're wonderful. The, the flying snake doesn't have wings in at all, really. It just flattens its body. Well, it moves its rib cage. It's, it, that's right. It, it widens its rib cage, but it's not like the, the flying lizard where, the, where the, the, the ribs really do shoot out. The ribs themselves shoot out. That's right. The ribs and shoot out. It's incredible. Skin stretching between them. That The snake doesn't do that. It just mm. simply makes the body a bit flatter by pushing the ribs out. Okay. Mm. And, and it kind of wriggles its way through the air in mm -hmm. pretty much the same kind of motion as it has on land, flying from one tree to another. It's a spectacular sight. Look it up on YouTube. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely. I'm thing. going to, yeah. yeah. That, well, we'll have to cover one of those species on our podcast for sure, because it, this book yeah. definitely perked my curiosity, which is a sign of a great book, as you always do whenever mm -hmm. I read one of your books or listen to one of your talks. Um, with everything that's happening with uh, global climate change, 
and birds and their numbers are declining. Many migratory species, especially here in North America, uh, we, we're, we're losing them at a drastic rate as far as we can tell. Are there, is there any evidence of birds starting to evolve changes to be able to adapt and or live with the pressures of the modern day world? Oh, well, there are some birds which, which are just like rats and exploit. Uh, Urbanization. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, for example, guts, gulls, herring, herring gulls, uh, for, for example, and, and no doubt there are American and New Zealand equivalents that do this. In, in Britain, um, herring gulls are, flourish on rubbish dumps. Um, and um, so they are in the same way kind of rats and mice among mammals uh, are um, going the opposite direction from, from, the, from these endangered species you're talking about. They, they, they become extremely numerous because they can exploit uh, human existence, human waste and human food stores and things. Um, but it is very sad that we're losing the species diversity, that we're losing so many species of not just birds and insects and... and Plants. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's... I would be remiss if, if, I, if I didn't ask you about this because it, it, it is a lot of what we talk about in the podcast, a lot of endangered species. With the Anthropocene, uh, the sixth mass extinction that, that many scientists believe that we're, we're at the beginning of or in the midst of. So how do you see that impacting our natural world? I mean, you, you were one of the most well-respected scientists in the world, uh, evolutionary biologist. So seeing the decay in the last, let's say, 50 years, how do you think that's going to impact our natural world in the next hundred or thousand years? I'm no expert on it. I, mean, I think you're, you probably know more about it than than than, than me. I, I suppose we lose if we lose lots of species, we end up with a, with a fewer species, which are which which become very successful, like gulls and rats and mice. Um, monocultures in in uh, agriculture um, are. A menace. I mean, they're they're efficient for producing food, but they're 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 a complete menace as far as as conserving wildlife is is concerned. Um, there are efforts in some countries to preserve things like hedgerows, um, which are refuges for quite a lot of of species. Um, but I don't really have much expertise in that that field. I I, I feel for it. I mean, I, mm. I feel tragic, and the extinction um, is is a genuine tragedy. It's a, it's an aesthetic feeling, a personal aesthetic feeling. I mean, it 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 if if um, elephants go extinct or rhinoceroses go extinct, um, it, it 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 is a a, tra a tragedy of an emotional aesthetic type from from for me i don't want it to happen i would like to see um extinct species like thylacines brought back um which they they th thylacine might be because because it's extinct sufficiently recently that the dna can be um obta obtained um 
it would be a, a great thing to see woolly mammoths brought back, thylacinus brought back, mm-hmm. woolly rhinoceroses brought back, um, Neanderthal humans, maybe. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting to study that, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yes, and Chris is a huge fan of woolly mammoths, so he. Uh, that's... <laughs> I did, I did some cloning in the early two thousands when it was the craze. Oh really? And, yeah, down to Texas. I mean, is it feasible to to to, to um put and to implant it, an embryo in a in a in an elephant? We were working when I was at the University of Florida. Some of my research was uh, we were. We were looking on on how to freeze semen of bull elephants because we don't have a good grasp on it yet. So our advanced uh, reproductive technologies in elephants isn't quite there. So to be able to clone, I, th- I believe we'll be able to well, clone yeah. mammoth embryos. It's the the fact of syncing up. I believe it was it was going to be Asian elephants as recips, if, if I remember right. Um, so syncing yeah, that whole process up is going to be very difficult and very costly. And so it's going to cost me, you know, I know George Church and others are working on it, but um, I think in my lifetime, we, we might see an hybrid type uh, woolly mammoth born, but yes, but we'll see. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I hope so. Yeah. We're getting there. Not, not everybody does. I mean, some people think there's a kind of moral argument against it, but I don't go along with that. <laughs> I, I I was always a proponent for it. I said they, I was doing some uh, genetic work and I'm like, Oh, they need me on this project because I, I wanted to figure out some recip genetics, but uh, yeah, that's a, that's another story for another day. Yeah. But, but, but focusing on big picture, wonderful, great things. Uh, Dr. Dawkins, you have a foundation and I would love for you to share with our audience just what the mission is of the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science. Well, Reason and Science is what it is. Um, and it re- recently uh, merged with a large American foundation called the Center for Inquiry, CFI, which um, has quite a long, for a long time, been um, had um, an interest both in secularism and and uh, n- n- and non-religious life, and also a, a, on skepticism about things like homeopathy and telepathy and flying saucers and things. Uh, I mean, at least testing, at least at least taking a, a scientific skeptical Approach. view of mm-hmm. such things. Um, so my foundation has merged with that, and so it's not possible for me to give an account of the aims of my foundation now separate from the CFI. So it's part of the same thing. And so, um, well, among the things that we are now doing is we have a a project called TIES, that's Teacher Institute for Evolutionary Science, which is a teaching project. Um, But it's not directly teaching children, it's teaching teachers how to teach evolution. Mm. And uh, it's run by a wonderful woman called Bertha Vasquez. Um, who is in Florida? Uh, she's she's a, a a teacher, a high school teacher, a middle school teacher, I think, in Florida, um, and she runs courses for other teachers, really to arm them in order against the kind of pushback that they get as soon as they come to evolution in in the biology course. They get pushback from children, from parents, from school boards from head teachers, and they are not necessarily equipped to answer the, these 
arguments that they get. And what Bertha's courses are doing is trying to uh, give them the arm the armament that they that they need, give them the arguments that they that they need. So that that's one that's one project. Um, there's a project for um, rescuing people who are religiously who, who are either not not religious or or, or anti-religious in places like Pakistan, places like Bangladesh. Oh wow! Yeah, by um, uh, sort of machete wielding. I was say their life, yeah. yeah, and 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 threatened by by justice system, which takes doesn't doesn't really take a very sympathetic view. Um, so that's um, an, another of our of our projects. Um, uh, there quite a lot of it is a, is about the skepticism we've got to, we take law, lawsuits against um big shops um ch- chain shops like walmart in america um which um sell homeopathic remedies we, you not not that that's necessarily um should be Ill- illegal but they but they don't distinguish them from real from real meds so they're housed in the same shelves Mm-hmm. As real medicine, and what we're trying to do with these lawsuits is to get them to put these quack remedies on separate shelves, preferably labeled these. These things don't work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, trust me. One of the classes I'm teaching right now is equine health and nutrition, and trying to talk to the students about all the supplements that they can feed their oh, yeah. horses, like yeah. turmeric and paprika, yeah. and. I mean, they're wonderful seasonings on our human food, and there is some evidence in human medicine that they might be an anti-inflammatory, what have you, but they've never even been looked at in horses, or if they yeah. have, it's a crazy dose, and you understand the scientific process, but it's uh, it can be hard to to get that through to um, students that are just starting to learn it. Yes, and I mean it's actually rather a, a good lesson to you could say, mm-hmm. how would you investigate that? How would you? Would and you... I just made that project um, yesterday, and I'm giving it to the students this week. And as a professor, it's always challenging when you give a new project because you never know if it's going to sink or swim. You know, if it's going to be good or bad. So I always ask for their feedback. But <laughs> but, but that's a bit uh, different from from homeopathy, where well, if you did an experiment to test homeopathy. There would be no difference between the experimental and the control. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my goodness. As we as we start to kind of wrap this up, because very cognizant of your time, it just really quick, Doctor Dawkins, are we winning this 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 science war? The the communication because you are definitely one of the world's top science communicators. Uh, You know, you for for years you've been out there in the public, talking science, fighting for science. Do you feel like we're winning, you know, the arguments? I, I can't decide that. I, I'm, in some ways, I think we are. I mean, the the, the COVID experience is is perhaps revealing. Um, I don't know how, how you feel about it. I, I feel that the prestige of science has gone up as a consequence of mm-hmm. um, the astonishing speed with which these various vaccines have been produced. Um, And um, I think we're now alerted to the danger that this may not be the the last such pandemic that we have Mm -hmm. to endure. And I think um, 
is it possible that, that the, the COVID experience has um, alerted people to the importance of science and how, how science, in something like the same way as Sputnik had alerted America yeah, to the need to really put, put money and effort into, into science. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether COVID perhaps had, has had a similar effect. I, I hope it has. It would be a silver lining. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And Dr. Dawkins, you've had this prestigious, iconic career. Uh, I'm just having goosebumps thinking about all of your accomplishments. What is one or two that you're most proud of? I suppose my second book, The Extended Phenotype, uh, is the one I'm most proud of as as, an, as a scientific achievement. Um, but I'm I, I do think communication is important too, and therefore um, the books that I've written, which which are attempts to communicate science, I, I feel that uh, they're a very worthwhile thing to have done. I, I'm, I'm glad to have done them. I'm glad to have got them under my belt and feel that that's a sense of achievement in my life. And hopefully our listeners will go out and pick up the Flights of Fancy because it is so beautiful. Uh, and we'll put a lot of information about it on our show notes. That's amazing. But let's let's say one of our listeners reads the book and they're wanting to read another book of yours. What one or two books would you recommend after reading Flights of Fancy for people that have interest in some of these evolutionary theories and concepts? Well, if the if the young people and, and flight of fantasy is partly aimed at young people if they're even younger actually then i suppose the magic of reality which was specifically written yeah. for children and it's heavily illustrated so that would be for, for young people mm. for adults um oh goodness um i mean i have my personal oh, favorites what's that? <laughs> Uh, the Selfish Gene, uh, The God Delusion, and now Flights of Fancy. So, yeah. Yes, okay. I, um, well, uh, uh, I, I'm pretty, pretty fond of them as well. Oh, good. Climbing <laughs> <laughs> um, Mountain Probable, I think, is my most underrated book um, in, in, in terms of sales. Mm-hmm. And, and I, th- I think it's one of the best, but, it, but, but it's sold, um, I think, among the least. Well, you're going to get some uh, copies yes. sold after this, after this podcast, uh, yeah, interviews it, or after this podcast airs and it'll definitely be with me and Chris. So you always have two more. <laughs> yes, I'm going to be buying <laughs> as many as I can. And hopefully, hopefully a lot more. I, I'll be yep. giving them as holiday gifts. That's for sure. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, because I know Darwin had such an effect in uh, Dr. Tinbergen. I teach a lot of his concepts when I'm doing animal behavior, who was uh, your uh, professor, right? Yes. Uh, but now, in this day and age, who is influencing you currently? I'm not sure about that. I think I'd rather not. I mean, mentioning dead people is fine. Right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. They're still influencing you. To, to mention living people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you're definitely a big influence yes. on all of us. Yes. So that is uh, a wonderful thing. And, and we definitely appreciate your time. Yes. Chris, yes. Just, you have just, any- yeah. A couple more questions before we let you go, Dr. I, I, 
I've got to say flights of fancy, go get the book. I'm my library is now going to start, I'm going to start filling it up because I just, the writing is it's, it, it's beautifully written. It, it's at a level where you just absorb it and it's, it's flights of fancy. I have oh, to go yes, back and I must, read it again. Yeah. Oh yes. I must admit in the evening to wind down after my kids go to bed and a busy day of work, I like to watch Netflix sometimes mm-hmm. some yes. documentaries, but the past two weeks when I've, I, I read about 10 pages a night because I'm so tired. I have been skipping Netflix and jumping in bed, <laughs> propping my pills up, turning my little nightlight on and enjoying this flights of fancies book. Like none of the other it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's re-energized me and refreshed uh, my scientific curiosities. And so I'm really hopeful that our, our listeners out there will do the same because at, at this point, it's much better than anything on Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> That's very nice to hear. Thank you very much. <laughs> and you want the hard copy if you can get it because it's just yeah, it's beautiful. so beautiful. Yeah. It's almost, a, it's almost like a, a, it could go on a coffee table too. It's yes. just yeah. a conversation piece, yeah. honestly, because of some of the, the artwork and how well the topics and chapters are laid out. So, uh, I think the publisher have done a good job, I must say. Oh, they did fantastic. Final question. Are you working on the next book, probably? And then where can our listeners uh, follow you? I, I know you're on Twitter and social media. Is is there somewhere else where they can go uh, to learn, like, if you're coming out or if you're speaking somewhere? Uh, yes. Well, um, actually, we're just now in the process of putting together a, a, w- a website. It's not launched yet, but it will be launched very soon. Um, it will be the 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 um, URL will be richarddawkins.com. Um, it's not there yet, but that that's what it will be, richarddawkins.com. Um, and that will certainly have uh, a list of speaking engagements. Uh, it it ha- it will have all, all my books up there and a, a selection of articles as well. Um, so that that's that, um, yeah. Okay. I mean, that, that, I, and as for what I'm working on at the moment, I mean, I'm working on a new book um, called "The Genetic Book of the Dead," um, which is um, sort of aimed at the same audience as the selfish gene. And um, I, that's I've done about thirty-five thousand words of that so far, and so that's still that's got a, a long way to go yet. Well, we look forward to hearing more about it in the future, and we definitely will keep our eye on richarddawkins.com. I, myself, will be very excited to see a lecture date somewhere in Florida Mm -hmm. uh, so that I can come hear you. Whereabouts in Florida are you? I'm where the the University of Florida is, so it's uh, Central Florida. uh, Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I I spent a sabbatical in Gainesville. I I do know the place. Okay. Well, you're more than welcome. I have an extra guest bedroom, lots, <laughs> lots of kids, dogs, and cats, but there is privacy. So, yeah. what, uh, about, what, what about New New Zealand? Where where about the New Zealand? Uh, in the in the Wakato, just south of Auckland. So definitely, you can come stay with us. I I don't have any cats. I have two little kids, though, so they might drive you nuts. But yeah, yeah, beautiful country. I know you you've you've been here. You've written quite a bit about it. It, it. It's one of the special places on, on earth, very unique biome. So I'm, I, I feel very, uh, yes. And, and we hope it's not too much ruined by imported animals. Uh, we're trying, we're trying, yeah. <laughs> try to try to get rid of those mammals that don't belong here. Well, you know? it's, it's, it's one thing if they get there sort of by accident, but de- deliberately introducing them 
is a grievous sin. Yeah, yeah. All the elk and everything on the South Island. Yeah, yeah. Even American turkeys are here. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Uh, well, Doctor Dawkins. Oh my gosh, I, I, we feel so grateful that you were able to come on. The book is Flights of Fancy, Defying Gravity by Design and Evolution. I know we've had authors on before, but this is one. If I had to pick one, this one, you, you, it's a must read. It's an absolute must read. Introduces you to Dr. Dawkins' writing if, if you're not familiar with it. it. Beautiful book, Dr. Dawkins. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah. We really appreciate your time and we look forward to many more books from you in the future. Maybe one on deep diving yes, yes. or uh, some other fantastical, uh, amazing things. So thank you so much. And I will come see you in Florida and we will be in touch. We'll put all this information on our show notes for our listeners at allcreaturespod.com. And we will also keep you updated on social media about uh, this interview and then other features that uh, Richard Dawkins will be doing in the future. Thank you so very much indeed. 